0: You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed.
1: It's Sunday, March 3rd. I'm Margaret Brennan, and this is Face the Nation. Unfazed by one of the worst weeks of his administration, the president slammed his critics in the longest speech of his presidency before a group of conservative activists.
2: And all of a sudden... They're trying to take you out with bullshit, okay?
1: The president is struggling to contain fallout from devastating testimony from former personal attorney Michael Cohen.
3: He is a racist, he is a con man, and he is a cheat.
1: And blasted Democrats for expanding their investigations.
2: I saw a little shifty shift, and he said, We're going to look into his finances. I said, Where did that come from? He always talked about
1: Russia. We'll ask the man in the president's crosshairs, the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Adam Schiff, about this week's bombshell revelations. And we'll ask the president's national security adviser, John Bolton, what went wrong with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. CBS News foreign correspondent Charlie Daggett sat down with Huda Muthena in Syria. She's the American who joined ISIS and is now barred from returning back home. And Senator Doug Jones talks about what it's like to be a Democrat in the very red state of Alabama. That plus analysis on all the news of the week is just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. We begin today with President Trump's National Security Advisor, Ambassador John Bolton. Good to have you here.
4: Glad to be with you.
1: We had different versions of the story as to why this summit failed to produce uh, any results. Why was the president unable to negotiate a breakthrough? Well,
4: I don't consider the summit a failure. I consider it a success defined as the president protecting and advancing American national interest. Uh, There was extensive preparation for this uh, meeting, uh, extensive discussions between the president and Kim Jong-un. And the issue really was whether North Korea was prepared to accept what the president called the big deal, which is denuclearized entirely. Uh, under a definition, the president handed to Kim Jong-un uh, and uh, have the potential for an enormous economic uh, future uh, or try and do something less than that, which was unacceptable to us. So the president uh, held firm to his view. He deepened his relationship with Kim Jong-un. Uh, I don't view it as a failure at all when American national interests are protected.
1: But to be clear, North Korea still has not agreed to denuclearize as the U.S. defines it. Not
4: as we have defined it, although they have committed in public in prior regimes in North Korea four or five times in writing to denuclearize. And that's something
1: that we
4: expect them to do uh, if they reach an agreement with us.
1: Well, on the specifics, um, a senior State Department official spoke to reporters and said... That what the North Koreans proposed specifically was about dismantling the three mile Yongbyun complex, which he defined as, quote, the totality of North Korea's plutonium reprocessing and uranium enrichment programs in exchange for lifting all sanctions except those on the weapons programs. Did the U.S. make a counter offer?
4: Well, the counteroffer has been there from the beginning, from from uh, the very first summit back in Singapore, which is if North Korea commits to complete denuclearization, including its ballistic missile program and its chemical and biological weapons programs. Uh, the prospect of economic uh, progress is there. The president, but that's
1: not what North Korea put on the table. That's they put not on what they, that's this not. narrow definition.
4: A very limited uh, concession by the North Koreans involving the Yongbyon complex, which uh, it includes an aging nuclear reactor and some percentage uh, of their uranium enrichment, plutonium reprocessing capabilities. In exchange, they wanted substantial relief from the sanctions. Now, one thing President Trump has said, beginning in the 2016 campaign is that he's not going to make the mistakes of prior administrations and get into this action-for-action action, uh, kind of arrangement, which so benefits was
1: no counter-offer.
4: the North Koreans. Our counteroffer was where we have been, where the president has uh, uh, exercised his persuasive abilities on Kim Jong-un to take the big deal, and they weren't willing to do it.
1: But what made uh, the president? stake out this maximalist position. You've negotiated with the North Koreans before, going back to 2002. Did you see the same pattern playing out now?
4: I think the difference that President Trump uh, has articulated to the North Koreans is Uh, The future for them once they make the strategic decision to denuclearize what they've done before is promise to denuclearize get economic benefits in return and then renege on the deal. What the president was trying to get them to do was look at what was possible for them uh, overall and I think he remains optimistic. Uh, that this is possible. Kim Jong-un himself said in our, our last meeting, you know, we're going to go through many stations uh, on, uh, before we achieve this deal. The meeting in Hanoi was one such station. So president's ready to keep talking.
1: Are you expecting North Korea to come back? With an offer?
4: Uh, I don't know what they're going to do. I think the president himself said that uh, he expects they'll want to go back and reevaluate what happened. Certainly, we will. We'll look at continuing the economic sanctions uh, against North Korea, which brought them to the table in the first place. We'll see what happens
1: next. But in the meantime, North Korea can still produce nuclear fuel.
4: And they have been doing it. Yes, they have. That's it's, exactly correct.
1: So they're a growing threat.
4: Well, I think our objective remains to find a way to get them to denuclearize. The president's trying this negotiation, but his objective has always been denuclearization.
1: Is the window for diplomacy about to close here? I mean, this this seems like an open-ended timeline.
4: I wouldn't say it that way. Look, the president opened the door for North Korea and Singapore. And they didn't walk through. He kept the door open. He kept the door open during that eight-month period. He kept it open in Hanoi. The North Koreans can walk through it. It's really up to them. That's the diplomatic window.
1: When you were on this program last July, though, you said the plan was to dismantle North Korea's nuclear facilities and have it turn over its uh, weapons of mass destruction within a year. Is that still a realistic timeline?
4: No, the question you asked then was, operationally, how long would it take? There was some dispute within uh, the U.S. government over a period of time. Once North Korea made the strategic decision to give up its weapons of mass destruction, ballistic missiles, how long would it take to conduct that dismantlement? And with a few exceptions, uh, our judgment was we could finish it within a year, once the process started.
1: So you still think it'll take a year to dismantle it, but you acknowledge they haven't even agreed... To denuclearize.
4: No, no, they have not. And agreed. there's exactly. no
1: expiration date on this offer to continue to negotiate.
4: There, there's no expiration date, as I say. The president uh, is fully prepared to keep negotiating at lower levels, were uh, to speak to Kim Jong Un again. But when aren't it's they a growing
1: threat if they can continue to develop nuclear fuel? Doesn't the leverage? get reduced on our end?
4: I don't think the leverage gets reduced because I think we will keep the maximum pressure campaign in place. Even before the summit, we were looking at ways to uh, tighten it up, to, to stop, for example, the ship-to-ship transfers that the North Koreans are using to evade the sanctions, to talk to other countries to make sure they tighten up on North Korea. It was the sanctions that brought the North Koreans to the table. It's the sanctions they want relief from and relief they can get if they denuclearize.
1: Before the president went to Hino- Hanoi, was the U.S. aware that North Korea would not allow anything beyond the Yongbyon complex, I mean, this second uranium enrichment site that the president nodded to in his press conference? Did you know that was not on the table?
4: Well. Uh- We don't know what's on the table from from North Korea until it comes out of uh, the the mouth of Kim Jong-un, the chairman. Well, that's what the diplomats
1: are supposed to be laying the groundwork for, so the president doesn't walk away with a failure. He
4: he didn't walk away with a failure. Unless you're prepared to say that it would be better to accept a bad deal than to walk away from no deal, to me, that's a success.
1: So you thought that nothing else was on the table. You were just testing the prospects we, by sending the president to Hanoi.
4: No, no, no. We, we honestly didn't know. I mean, it, it's, it's not unusual in these circumstances to find that there are additional concessions that the other side might make. But we've tried to make it clear to them, uh, as the, again, the president has said this repeatedly, we're not going to make the mistakes of past administrations. We're not going to make the mistake that Obama made in the Iran nuclear deal. What we want is denuclearization, broadly defined, as the president himself laid out for Kim Jong-un in the paper that he gave him.
1: So, but you've tested this proposition now of what it's like to negotiate top-down
4: well this we've, is had, now two, the, we've what, had two we've had two commander in
1: chief to try to do this it was a very different approach but the success rate hasn't been anything more than in the past
4: well the success rate in the past was zero so that's not a hard bar to overcome uh, there's a there's an argument that proceeding Uh, deductively rather than inductively, makes a lot of sense. Uh, We've had two meetings. Uh, We'll we'll see what happens next.
1: But in the meantime, as we say, they can still produce nuclear fuel. And as you saw, after the president left Hanoi, Kim Jong-un stayed there. I mean, he was walking around, touring hotspots in Vietnam. He no longer looks like a pariah. Didn't he gain from this?
4: I don't think that's the president's view at all. He sat
1: across from the president almost as if an equal.
4: He did that in Singapore. The president's view is he gave nothing away.
1: But do you actually believe that?
4: The president's view is he gave nothing away. That's, that's what matters, not my view. As I've said before, I guess I can't get people to listen, so I'll try it one more time. I'm the national security advisor. I'm not the national security decision maker. Well,
1: well your, your views have been well documented in the past. Um, I, Usually the
4: pr- by me. I mean, I've written a lot. I've written a lot in the you've past. You've been
1: skeptical for, for and, many, many years. And
4: as I've said, th- those views are out there. Anybody can read right. them. My job now is to help the president give him his advice, give him my advice. He'll make the decision.
1: And to be clear, the administration still is no longer advocating regime change.
4: The the position of the administration is we want denuclearization of North Korea. And that's the objective we're pursuing.
1: And you still believe that Kim Jong-un can deliver on that?
4: Uh, I think he is the uh, authoritative ruler of that country. And if he were to make the strategic decision to denuclearize, we think it would happen.
1: The president uh, was asked about this American student, Otto Warmbier, who died tragically after being released after some brutal treatment in North Korean captivity when was it that the president actually brought up his case to Kim Jong Un?
4: Well, that was in one of the meetings uh, in, uh, on, on the second day, I think. And uh, look, the president Hanoi. in Hanoi. The Is that the been, first
1: time he brought it up?
4: Uh, no, I think it's been brought up before. I think it was brought up in Singapore. But the president's been very clear. He, he viewed what happened to Otto Warmbier as barbaric and unacceptable. And I think. Uh, The best thing North Korea could do right now would be to come up with a full explanation of exactly what happened to him.
1: But it it seemed to suggest that the president, since he said he took Kim Jong-un at his word, was willing to put aside these egregious human rights abuses and uh, basically the killing of an American while in captivity.
4: Listen, I've heard the president talk about Otto Warmbier on any number of occasions in the Oval Office, and I know how strongly he feels about it. I have no doubt of that whatever.
1: Before I let you go, I want to ask you, uh, the House Oversight Chairman, Elijah Cummings, has requested information about your personal security clearance. Is there anything you know of that would have raised a red flag, what he's looking for here?
4: Not not at all. You know, someday I'll be a private citizen again, and I'd be delighted to take this nonsense on in detail. But as a White House official right now, threatened with uh, subpoenas, with a lot of other things that's going on in Congress, I'll take guidance from the White House Counsel's Office and the Justice Department and just Wait for the day when I'm a private citizen.
1: But counsel, the White House, will respond to this. They will respond to it. That's correct. Ambassador Bolton, thank you for joining us. Thank you. We go now to the top Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee, Adam Schiff. He joins us from Boynton Beach, Florida, this morning. Uh, Good morning to you, Congressman. The president personally attacked you yesterday uh, at a a conservative political action uh, summit, and he balked at specifically the broadening of the investigation into his finances. Can you clarify exactly what Democrats are looking for here? Is it his tax returns?
5: Well, I'm not surprised the president has balked at Congress looking into his personal business, uh, something he's tried to draw a red line around. But we have seen uh, from our own investigation, as well as the special counsels, just how perilous it would be for the country if we ignored or allowed uh, him to draw red lines The Moscow-Trump Tower deal, uh, for example, is among the most disturbing because that's something the president was pursuing uh, throughout the midst of the presidential campaign while saying he was having no business dealings with the Russians. That was a deal that stood to make him more money than any other deal in his life. And it was a deal where he was pursuing help from the Kremlin, from uh, Putin himself, uh, at a time when Putin was seeking relief from sanctions. And that is the most compromising circumstance uh, that I can imagine. So we are certainly looking deep into the set of issues around Moscow Trump Tower. We're also looking at persistent allegations that the Russians have been laundering money through the Trump organization. I don't know that that's true. But if it is, again, it's a profound compromise of this president. Uh,
1: You said you don't know that that's true. Who can answer that question for you? Who do you need to talk to?
5: Well, we'll need to talk to some of the banks uh, that have been doing business with Mr. Trump, like Deutsche Bank, which has had a history of laundering Russian money. Uh, it was a, a bank, one of the very few, if only, that would do business with Mr. Trump after American banks refused. Uh, but we also will want to speak with the, uh, the accountants, the chief financial officers for the Trump Organization, uh, and others uh, who would have information about the Moscow-Trump Tower deal, uh, about the issue of money laundering. Uh, in fact, we're bringing Felix Sater in to talk mm-hmm. about Moscow Trump Tower uh, in a couple weeks. Uh, so there are any number of witnesses that can shed light on whether America's national security is compromised because the president has been pursuing financial interests with the Russians.
1: Well, Michael Cohen, I know will be testifying again before your committee this week. What kind of corroborating materials do you expect him to bring to that meeting?
5: Well, Mr. Cohen testified uh, in open session, and I can't go into our closed session interview, uh, but about his false testimony before our committee uh, previously uh, and how that written statement had gone through different drafts or iterations. Uh, He testified in open session that others had reviewed that testimony, uh, and we have obviously a deep and compelling interest in whether others were knowing of those false statements that he would make to Congress. Uh, whether there are any other uh, acts or evidence of obstruction of justice, which is also a core part of our investigation.
1: Uh, Cohen said, though, in that open testimony, he had no direct evidence of collusion with Russia. The Senate Intel chairman also said at this point, no evidence of collusion at this point. Have you seen, do you have direct evidence of collusion with Russia?
5: Well, I think there is direct evidence in the emails uh, from the Russians uh, through their intermediary offering dirt on Hillary Clinton as part of what is described in writing as the Russian government effort to help elect Donald Trump. Uh, They offer that dirt. Uh, There is an acceptance of that offer in writing from the president's son, Don Jr., uh, and there's overt acts and furtherance of that. Uh, That is the meeting at Trump Tower and all the lies to cover up that meeting at Trump Tower, and apparently lies... That the president participated in—that to me is direct evidence. But there's also abundant circumstantial evidence. Uh, there is, for example, evidence of uh, Manafort sharing internal polling data with someone linked to the Russian intelligence services. But Why he... do that? What legitimate purpose is there for things like that? Uh, Michael Cohen's own testimony was circumstantial evidence that the president was dealing with Roger Stone, who was dealing with WikiLeaks in the effort but to none of this find out to... about releases of information. Impeachment
1: grounds for you still.
5: I mean, these are serious allegations. Well, I mean, here's the thing, and I've made this this distinction all along, uh, and that is while there is abundant evidence of collusion, the issue from a criminal point of view is whether there is proof beyond a reasonable doubt of a criminal conspiracy. Uh, And that is something that we will have to await Bob Mueller's report and the underlying evidence to determine. Uh, We will also have to look at the whole body of uh, improper and criminal actions by the president, uh, including those campaign finance crimes to determine whether they rise to the level of removal from office. Uh, I have said uh, that I think we should await the evidence from Bob Mueller as well as our own work. Uh, and I'm pleased to see that uh, Mr. Nunes, who and I, he and I have profound disagreements about many things, are in agreement on one thing. The report and the evidence needs to be provided to Congress. Uh, I think that also needs to be made public.
1: Uh, Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader, has called for your recusal, saying that because you had contact with Michael Cohen that that, uh, you should not be directly involved in these investigations any longer and that you set that standard. How do you respond to that?
5: Well, it's pretty frivolous. Uh, What McCarthy is upset about is that I invited Michael Cohen to testify and that he accepted uh, and our staff sat down and interviewed him before his testimony. That's what you do in any credible investigation. Uh, Bob Mueller's team sat down with Michael Cohen seven times. The extent of my contact was just inviting him to testify and also trying to allay his concerns about the president's threats against him and his family. But our staff certainly sat down to interview him, and that's what you do in any credible investigation. Uh, Mr. McCarthy, I think, can be forgiven for not knowing how to run a credible investigation. For the last two years, they did none. But one thing that I think is really unforgivable... And that's the degree to which Mr. McCarthy and others have prostrate themselves before this president, and not just in the Russia investigation, but uh, even more significantly now with this uh, emergency declaration, which is Mm -hmm. an attack on the Congress's power of the purse. And for Kevin McCarthy as the Republican leader to go along with that, to so debase himself before this president at the cost of our institution, I think is unforgivable.
1: Thank you very much, Congressman. After we finished our interview with Chairman Schiff, he asked to turn the cameras back on to comment on what Ambassador Bolton had said about the North Korea summit. Congressman, uh, what was your impression of how the National Security Advisor described what happened in Hanoi?
5: Well, I was struck by one thing in particular, and that is when you asked him whether the president had given up anything by going to this summit and walking away empty-handed. And his answer was that the president didn't believe so. Uh, And you asked him, well, do you believe so? And he said, well, what the president believes is all that matters he couldn't even agree with his own president because, of course, the president did give up a great deal by going to that summit, by enhancing uh, Kim Jong-un's prestige on the world stage, by giving up those uh, military exercises in the last summit uh, and getting nothing for it. Uh, and this is, I think, the result of a president who is not prepared for these kind of negotiations, uh, a staff that is not well prepared uh, and that is essentially flying by the seat of its pants and it has real world consequences Those reactors continue to spin on, as you point out, uh, producing more material that can threaten us and our allies. Uh, And I think that this was a spectacular failure, uh, but made all all the worse by the president's uh, obsequious comments when it came to the murder of an American citizen, Otto Warmbier.
1: House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff weighing in on the North Korean summit. We obviously spoke uh, with both gentlemen earlier. We'll be back in a moment with more Face the Nation.
0: Memories make us laugh and cry. And sometimes cringe when we look back at our fashion choices. But in between flashbacks of bowl cuts and dad jeans, our memories are fading, and so is the old media that holds them. Hi, I'm Adam Baselogger. And I'm Nick Mako, and we're the founders of Legacy Box. Legacy Box is the easiest and safest way to preserve your family memories. Here's how it works. Fill Legacy Box with your outdated media. We professionally digitize and send them back on DVDs, thumb drive, or the cloud. Look, those forgotten home movies, VHS tapes, film reels, and photos are degrading right before your eyes. Experience peace of mind and enjoy reliving the glory days. Join more than half a million families who have already trusted Legacy Box. Save your memories today. Visit LegacyBox.com save. And for a limited time, get 40% off your order. That's LegacyBox.com slash save. For 40% off. Legacybox.com slash save.
1: I traveled to Vietnam this past week for CBS News's coverage of the summit between President Trump and Kim Jong-un. Even though there were no agreements out of Hanoi, there were some remarkable moments. The theater of the summit almost overshadowed the seriousness of the issues. On the streets of Hanoi, T-shirts with quirky images of President Trump and Kim Jong-un were sold as souvenirs. A local bar served up a kimchi-flavored beer called Kim Jong Ale. But the two unpredictable leaders spent far longer traveling to Vietnam than they did negotiating. Kim took a 60-plus hour train ride. President Trump flew 17 hours plus to go halfway around the world.
2: Sometimes you have to walk. And uh, this was just one of those times.
1: They left with a stalemate and a pledge to have diplomats continue talking. But even that may be a winning prospect for Kim, who no longer appears a pariah. He stayed in Vietnam after the summit to tour hotspots, an option not afforded to his people. They're forbidden to travel. Still, the sanctions choking his country's economy remain, as do widespread food shortages. North Korea is strapped for cash due to crippling global sanctions so it relies on illicit trade and even state-owned businesses like this restaurant which sends money back to Pyongyang. Now it may be even harder to get other countries to shut down these small operations after Kim earned the right to sit across from the president as almost an equal since he figured out how to threaten the U.S. with nuclear weapons and then flattered him with letters flirting with the idea of giving that arsenal away. The U.S. did learn a few things, that Kim does not want to be isolated, and most of all, that he wants the financial strain on North Korea lifted. are you confident? Thanks, it was extraordinary to see him face questions from the Western press for the very first time. Kim, are you Questions that made aides nervous, but even President Trump wanted answered. Is it better to leave, yeah, let the media I think we will.
2: I think it's actually an interesting question. I would like to actually hear that answer.
1: While the brinksmanship of these two unusual personalities failed to forge a breakthrough, at least neither side seemed ready to escalate to war, instead leaving the door open to future diplomacy. And we'll be right back.
2: What's your next adventure? Everyone deserves a chance to do what they love. Pacific Life helps you reach financial goals while you go after your personal ones. Plans change over time, and your financial solutions can too. Ask a financial professional about how Pacific Life can help give you the freedom to do what you love, or visit www.pacificlife.com.
1: Welcome back to Face the Nation. We turn now to the case of Huda Muthena, a 24-year-old woman born in New Jersey and raised in Alabama. In 2014, she joined ISIS and married an ISIS fighter. She now wants to return to the U.S. with her young son. But the Trump administration is refusing to grant that request. Her case will be heard tomorrow by a federal judge here in Washington. CBS News foreign correspondent Charlie Dagata is in northern Syria, and he sat down with Huda Muthena on Saturday.
0: Good morning. We met Hoda Muthana and her 18-month-old son Adam at a refugee camp that is now home for the foreseeable future. And the first she learned about the U.S. court hearing tomorrow that may decide her fate came from us. Being so isolated here, do you have any idea the storm of controversy that's been kicked off in the United States over this case?
6: Um, people have been telling me they've... They've they've seen my case on TV, and everyone asks me, what are you going to do now? Where are you going to go next? Um, I keep keep telling everyone that uh, we're still trying to win the case, and hopefully we will. And I know I am an American citizen, and I know I have the right to come back. I have no other citizenship anywhere. Even my own home country, I don't... I've never been there, never stepped foot out of America, so...
0: So there's no talk of, like, a Yemeni citizenship? No. You have no Yemeni citizenship? No. That's not even an option. The president of the United States himself said that you're not welcome back to America. What would you say to him?
6: I would tell him to study the legal system <laughs> because uh, apparently I am allowed back. I have papers, I have citizenship. I have uh, my dad, my dad's documents... It's it's uh, apparent that he stopped working with the United Nations way before
0: I was born. We found she handed her passport over to ISIS a month after she crossed into Syria from Turkey in November 2014. She surrendered to US-led coalition forces in January in the dying days of ISIS. She insists she would have left sooner but could never raise enough money to pay smugglers. 6000 6000 dollars.
6: And there was no way I can get That type of money. So I was held, we were held hostage there basically. And the only way to leave was to go through a field of IEDs or snipers from ISIS shooting at you. Or if you do get caught, which I got caught twice and I was very scared. I got caught twice by them. And in one situation, I actually broke my phone and ran away.
0: Yet for a time, she apparently embraced the darkest beliefs of ISIS, allegedly taking to social media to incite attacks on Americans. Her lawyer has advised her not to comment about that.
6: I, ru- I ruined my life. I ruined it. Well, no.
0: you, had, you know.
6: No. I ruined my son's future, but I wouldn't have had a son if I didn't come. That's the only regret I don't have.
0: Now, she and other Western ISIS families had to be transferred there from another camp because of death threats from ISIS hardliners, and hers is not an isolated case. She said she knew of maybe a handful of other Americans there, but officials say they will not comment on individual nationalities. Margaret?
1: That's our Charlie Daggett in Syria. We're now joined by Alabama's Democratic Senator Doug Jones. He's also the author of a new book, Bending Towards Justice, the Birmingham church bombing that changed the course of civil rights. Senator, uh, I want to ask you about the book, but first let's, ask, let's talk about uh, this young woman because sure. she is from Alabama. Yep. Have you spoken to the White House about her case? No,
7: I have not. You know, her citizenship is tied up with the State Department right now. They'll have that hearing on that. Uh, you know, but no one is going to welcome this person back to the United States. That's just a, a mischaracterization. I, I do think we ought to consider bringing her back to face justice. We do it all the time with terrorists, with other people that get, uh, commit crimes against the United States. I think it sends a kind of a bad message message if we give someone a get-out-of-jail-free card just because they go to the Middle East.
1: Secretary Pompeo claims she has no basis to claim U.S. citizenship, but she did have a U.S. passport.
7: She did. I, I think that that's going to be decided in the courts and within the State Department. My concern is just the message that we're sending by not bringing someone back to face American justice. I have an abiding faith. You know, I'm an old federal prosecutor myself, and I have this faith in our system of justice to do the right thing, to make sure that justice is imposed. And I think that that's what we ought to be looking at here.
1: Well, you talked about your time as a prosecutor. Uh, You famously prosecuted KKK members, those involved in that 1963 horrific bombing of a church that killed uh, four little girls. It took decades for the FBI to release any of the evidence they had gathered against the killers. From your experience, do you think digging into history, painful history like this, aggravates tensions, or is it necessary?
7: Oh, I think it's absolutely necessary. What we saw after after those cases, there was such a sense of healing. I mean, there are still a lot of open wounds for those civil rights cases because people don't know the answers. They don't know why. They don't know the who. Uh, And I think, it you know, we can look back at ourselves and at a painful time in our history, and we can learn from those mistakes. I think it's even more important today. We see hateful rhetoric all over the country these days and it's not just black and white anymore it's re- it's religion it's nationality it's gender uh, you name it we see that and i think to go back and look at that history to make sure we don't miss you know commit the same mistakes that we did the last time i think it's very important and it's a sense of healing for the community and for those families you talk in the book about backsliding that's the mm-hmm.
1: phrase you use Yep. Uh, particularly on the voting rights oh, of minorities these days. Who, who do
7: you blame for that? What is well, I, I think it? it's a combination of things. I mean, I think that, that we've had some uh, losses in the courts, but I also think it's a political power grab right now where people are trying to gerrymander districts, where people are trying to prevent people to, to the right to vote, give them free access to the vote. We need to be expanding the voter rolls and, and trying to get people to the vote. We need to be pushing the percentage of uh, Americans up who, are, uh, uh, who want to vote on election day. And instead, we seem to be working, and the powers that be seem to be constricting that. And I think we've got to change that. There's a new bill pending right now, introduced last week on the voter enhancement. Try to put some teeth back in the Voting Rights Act. Who do you blame for this? Well, you know, I think if you look at uh, carefully, you have to look at the state legislatures, governors and members of Congress that are Republicans. For whatever reason, they do not want African-Americans and other minorities to vote. I assume rather rather than trying to get those votes, they seem to want to restrict those votes. And I think that that's incredibly unfortunate. We need to have more dialogues in this country rather than monologues. And then we can do it about Voting Rights Act. We talk a good game about everybody having a right to vote and a duty to vote. But at the end of the day, we seem to be working to to try to restrict that. And that's just wrong.
1: Just yesterday, you saw uh, we learned what was going to happen to those two Sacramento police officers involved in the shooting of uh, a man named Stefan Clark. He was about 22 years old, shot in his grandmother's backyard. They thought he was armed. Turned out it was just a cell phone. Um, It turns out he had faced some accusations of domestic abuse, other things. But what do you make of this case? Because for many, they see this as an example of a criminal justice system that is unfairly treating and just rigged against African-Americans.
7: Well, I, and to some extent, I think that there, there's some truth to that. I mean, historically, over the last 30, 40 years, especially with the crack cocaine epidemic, uh, we've seen all manner of things where the uh, people of color have been incarcerated on larger scales than, than those that are, are not. And I think we took a first step act. Uh, that we passed in Congress this past year, past Congress, uh, with criminal justice reform, with the president's approval, with the support of the administration. I think that is going to go to correct it. But it is very difficult when you have tensions between law enforcement and any minority community. And that's very difficult to do. Law enforcement officers have to make split-second uh, decisions. But at the same time, there's got to be some way to hold people accountable, even if they make the wrong decision at the wrong time.
1: You mentioned the First Step Act, uh, which you supported. That was the Trump administration initiative. I mean, you're in this unusual position um, of being from a very red state. I think you're the first Democrat elected to the Senate from Alabama in 1992. 25 years. Yeah, absolutely. yeah, you're up for re-election yeah. in 2020. You're getting targeted. This season oh, sure. for Republicans to flip it back. H- how do you convince people in your home state to, to not make you uh, just, you know— The first in 25 years and the last.
7: Well, you know, all I do is do my job. Uh, I have the people of Alabama's best interest at heart. I am an independent voice for them. I'm not a, a, a solid voice uh, or vote for the president or the Democratic Party. I look at each individual vote separately, and I try to do the right thing. Uh, I think some of the best compliments I've had in the last year, my one year in the Senate, was when I'd go home and people say, well, Doug, you're doing exactly what you said you would do. And that's looking out for us. Uh, and we have a lot of issues that we face. But, you know, I think uh, Alabama, the South, we're all changing. There's a lot of things going on. We're putting a, a, aside a lot of the issues that have divided us in the past that have caused some of those uh, incredible divisions, political and social divisions. Right now, we're talking about jobs. We're talking about health care. That's a driving force in my state, education, workforce development. Those are the things we have in common, and that's what I'm going to keep preaching. And we'll see how it goes. I feel very good about where we are.
1: Senator, thank you for joining us. Thank
7: you. It's my pleasure.
1: We'll be back in a moment with our political panel.
8: I used to think that all diet and weight loss plans were the same. Well, not anymore, because I found Noom. Noom is a new and totally different approach to losing weight and getting healthy that uses psychology and small goals to help change your habits. So it's easy to lose the weight and keep it off for good. Noom combines the power of technology with real human support, offering as little or as much help as you want along the way. And since Noom is an app, it's always with you and easy to use, which makes it super easy to stay on track and reach your goals. Plus, it's really simple to get started. Just go online, answer a few quick questions, and they'll create a personalized program just for you. Noom helped me lose my old way of thinking about food and dieting. So what do you have to lose? Visit noom.com slash podcast, N-O-O-M dot slash podcast, and start your 14-day trial today. Like they say, change your habits, change your mind, and change for good with Noom We turn now to our panel
1: for some political analysis. Jeffrey Goldberg is the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic. Paula Reed covers the Justice Department as well as the White House for CBS. David Sanger is a national security correspondent and senior writer for The New York Times. And David Nakamura covers the White House for The Washington Post. Um, So I know you guys aren't over your jet lag, because I certainly am not, (laughs) having covered this uh, summit in Hanoi. David, you have a piece, an extensive one, in The New York Times today, writing about what went wrong. With these talks, you heard the national security adviser give his take. What is the bottom line?
9: Well, I think the bottom line Maru, is that they sent the president of the United States halfway around the world into a negotiation that had not been in, not only not pre-cooked, but basically they had nothing when he landed. Usually, the way summits work for all of us who've gone and covered these is the president comes in as the closer on the final ten percent. What was clear here was that this was not just the get-to-know-you meeting that happened in Singapore. This was a meeting that was intended to go work out a schedule for the denuclearization. And if you couldn't get that, then at least stop the problem from getting worse. They
1: couldn't even agree on the definition of denuclearization.
9: They, they could not. And Kim came in with an uh, offer to, which had been made in various forms uh, over the past three presidencies to go sort of have a moratorium on some kind of production at Yongbyon, which is their main uh, nuclear center. There was some remarkable interchanges. You heard a little bit of it when you asked uh, Mr. Bolton about it. There are sites outside of Yongbyon that are still producing nuclear material. The president correctly, I think, wanted to get everything shut down, but he left not even getting a suspension of additional production, which means that while this drags on, the North Korean problem's getting worse. They have 30 weapons already. They'll probably have more. Also, just the scene of what we were going mm-hmm. through, I and mean, this was taking place in the Metropole Hotel, this old French colonial hotel, a century old, feet from where the President and Kim were meeting, is a bomb shelter that was used to herd guests into when the Americans were bombing uh, North Vietnam. So this whole scene of of working out one last Cold War problem mm-hmm. on the site where Ho Chi Minh and, is, and others plotted against the Americans and the French. It was pretty remarkable.
1: There were so many remarkable moments, and we saw one of them in, in that piece earlier. But, David, we have to point out, you were the reporter mm-hmm. who had the guts to <laughs> throw the very first question to Kim yeah. Jong-un, and he... Answer answered, he answered. It. Shou- it was shouting
10: a question to the most brutal dictator in the world, what could go wrong right <laughs> uh, luckily i 'm back here to talk about it luckily fortunately uh, no we didn 't know what would happen. I mean there 's a small group of White House reporters that are allowed into these photo ops. Um, people often shout at President Trump sometimes the answers the day before he had gotten irritated by some shouted questions. but we wanted to engage Kim jong un this was a few, one of the few chances. Even if they had gotten a deal, he would not have appeared at a news conference. Um, so we did ask him. I asked him whether he was confident he would get a deal. He said he was, at the moment, too early to tell. He was right. Um, and uh, he said he was not pessimistic. He was hopeful. But we saw just hours later, I was there in the dining room for lunch. We were, the press corps was let in, and we said the lunch would start around noon. Uh, half an hour later, we, they still hadn't uh, happened. And we realized that this thing had gone off the rails and things were not going well. And sure enough, within about five minutes of that, we were told plans had changed were led back to the, um, to the press hold, and then they canceled uh, the lunch and uh, any signing ceremony, so there was no
1: deal. And, and we should point out, that's not just your analysis. That was actually yeah. on a public schedule, that yeah. there was a signing right. ceremony. Right. Um, so it, it would be understanding things, Jeff, to say this disappointed, even though John Bolton said <laughs> it was not.
3: Uh, yeah, John Bolton uh, did an admirable job of masking his own obvious feelings uh, regarding this summit. Uh, yeah, I mean, I would just issue one corrective to David's uh, excellent summary, uh, David Sanger's excellent summary. Um, he talked about uh, they brought the president halfway around the world. The president brought himself halfway around the world. Nobody really thought that this was going to work. This was not pre-cooked. That would be a, a vernacular way of describing how summits are, are made. Uh, but you're exactly right. You're supposed to bring the president in to, to, to sign the document to maybe argue a little bit. But this was um, this was another thing entirely, and this is, this is the downside of an entirely spontaneous presidency and a president who doesn't actually listen. It acknowledges that he doesn't listen to his own intelligence chiefs when they tell him this is not going to work, this is not going to work, and, and, and so on. And so the outcome... It was bizarre scene, but this was predictable, utterly it predictable. It shows the limits of the president's
10: strategy here. was He said, look, we have 30 years of negotiations at the lower level. Mm-hmm. We never got to a presidential summit. Let's flip it around, take right. more risk, start top down. Uh, but, you know, this is something where the president felt his personal relationship with Kim Jong-un, whatever that is, no one's really sure what that is, but he thinks it's good, and that that would be the closing. That would make the deal happen. It's not going to work. And
9: he may have overpersonalized it in that regard, because he's right. showing people these letters from Kim Jong-un as if I have a rapport with him, I'll be able to make this deal.
1: Paul, the other personal relationship the president had that we heard a lot about this week was uh, with his former attorney, Michael Cohen, who was testifying while these negotiations are happening. And the president actually acknowledged, despite the 12-hour time difference, that he watched the testimony.
11: Absolutely. And the timing was deliberate. This is an effort to undermine the president and lay out a roadmap for House Democrats to now pursue various investigations. The most important thing we learned from this hearing is that the president's legal problems have metastasized far beyond the special counsel investigation. And what he should be most concerned about is what is going on in the Southern District of New York we're federal prosecutors, we knew they were looking into campaign finance violations. They have several cooperating witnesses who implicate the president in directing this scheme to violate campaign finance laws. But now we've also learned there are other investigations that we still don't know about. In addition to the fact that they're looking into the president's last conversation with Michael Cohen. He couldn't even discuss what the two men talked about because that is the subject of an ongoing investigation, raising questions about possible obstruction or even witness tampering.
1: And the Judiciary Committee uh, chairman in the House uh, said today, for him, all this amounts to obstruction of justice. And in fact, I think he's calling about 60 different individuals uh, to try to come testify. Where does this go next?
11: We are going to really shift the focus from the special counsel. Everyone's going to be on high alert once again for that final report. But what's going on in Manhattan, that's what's really going to matter. Those crimes are also probably more easy to prove since you have cooperating witnesses. And oftentimes they may not be the sexiest crimes, right, possible tax fraud or insurance fraud, but they're much easier to prove because they're paperwork crimes. On a parallel track, House Democrats are going to go full steam ahead calling all of these witnesses and continuing to seek corroborating documents for what Michael Cohen said, seeing if they can sort of, you know, confirm his story. But so far, it appears that the special counsel's report may not come for a few more weeks.
1: And we heard from Adam Schiff, uh, the chairman of House Intelligence, uh, this allegation of money laundering on behalf of Russia through the Trump organization, but he admitted he had no proof of that thus far.
11: That's a pretty big bomb to lob without any corroboration. I also take issue uh, with his claim that he has evidence of collusion. He seemed to be conflating contact with with collusion. He says what happened at Trump Tower was collusion. He's pointing to emails. Mm -hmm. Nothing was exchanged there. Same with the meeting that Paul Manafort had with Constantine Kalimnik exchanging polling data. We know there was contact. We know that. But we don't know what they did with that polling data. So we certainly have evidence of contact, but a criminal conspiracy so far, there has not been sufficient proof for anyone to be charged in that.
1: We're going to take a really quick break and come back in just a moment.
2: Are you having trouble sleeping? NFL players have been coached. Blue light from smart devices, it can affect your sleep. They'll even wear blue blocker glasses in the evening for improved sleep. Others will try tart cherry juice and smoothies. Not only can it help fight inflammation, but to help you sleep, it's got high amounts of natural melatonin that's beneficial for sleep. The other night, my girlfriend told me I was snoring way too much and even the earplugs weren't helping. So the next day, she took me to a sleep number store because if I was snoring, at least she could get a good night's sleep on a sleep number bed. Sleep Number Beds allow you to adjust on each side to your ideal firmness, comfort, and support. The Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed senses your movement and automatically adjusts to keep you sleeping comfortably through the night. With Sleep IQ technology inside the bed, it tracks how you're sleeping so you can know every morning how well you've slept and gain insights for your best sleep. Experience the smart, effortless comfort of the Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed. Find your competitive edge with proven, quality sleep from $999. Sleep Number is the official sleep and wellness partner of the NFL. You'll only find Sleep Number at one of their 575 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Find the one nearest you at sleepnumber.com slash cadence. That's sleepnumber.com slash C-A-D-E-N-C-E. Sleep Number.
1: We're back now with our political panel. Uh, David Nakamura, I want to ask you about the president's speech, the longest of his presidency, just yesterday at CPAC. Uh, A lot different headlines in there. A lot of different headlines. Yeah. But, but for you, I mean, what stood out? What was the I mean, purpose in this t- almost two hour long speech? I mean, it
10: seemed like, uh, you know, greatest hits. He went through a lot of things that he's talked about before and, of course, demonized the investigations into his uh, campaign conduct and so on. And uh, but what struck me was the length of this uh, event, but also the setting of the event, you know, with a crowd that really does seem to genuinely support the president and really love the president um, seemed like he was coming back from a summit that had collapsed. He had a hearing of Michael Cohen when he was out of the country, and it was hard for him to sort of, um, you know, come back like he'd like to do in real time. And now he had a lot to get off his chest. And so, you know, he went through uh, bit by bit all the folks who he felt
3: as a threat to him and does what he does, which is attack. It was a greatest hits uh, compilation, and I, I was thinking, watching it, I was thinking he had been so buttoned up, comparatively speaking, in Hanoi, You have to hit your marks, you have to say certain things, and he's not disciplined in that way. He gets in front of a a home audience, a home home field advantage, and everything pours out. All the repressed observations that he wanted to make. Including profanity. Including profanity, including everything. It was the longest speech in presidential (laughs) history, if you actually want to call it a speech. I don't know if technically it counts as a speech in terms of its organization. But it was, we believe, the longest longest public speaking uh, event of a president in history.
9: The other oddity was, here was a president who we thought might be using Hanoi as a, uh, a way to divert from the, from the Cohen uh, testimony. And then he shows up basically having to divert from the fact that (laughs) he had come back from Hanoi with nothing uh, against, you know, a tiny country that, you know, has a fraction of the power of the United States. So he is, as David says, back to his greatest It took him about
3: one hour and 50 minutes even to get to North Korea, if I'm (laughs) honestly in the speech. Mm
1: -hmm. But it's, it's interesting, David, because The Washington Post has a headline today saying the acquiescence to Trump is now the GOP's defining trait. I mean, is that how you read that speech yesterday before CPAC? Well,
9: I think one of the remarkable things about the Republican Party is that in the run-up to the election, you had saw all these people trying to separate themselves from President Trump. And now they've determined he's their candidate for the next uh, election. So they have to line themselves up. And I think the long historical question here is, is the Republican Party going to be, over the long term more like the party that President Trump has defined Mm -hmm. or more like the traditional Republicans that President Trump defeated for the nomination. And I don't think they've really decided internally within the party uh, the answer to that. And I think much of it depends on how the investigation turns out.
1: And Paula, you're seeing Republicans line up behind the president in defending him against these investigations as well. I mean, you have Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader, out there on the attack against Adam Schiff, who's leading the House in Texas.
11: And Party. look at the Cohen hearing, right? Everyone else was seeming to audition for that role of, of fixer. Republicans weren't able to really, except for one exception, grill him on the substance of his allegations, many of which were extremely damning. Instead, they just went after his credibility, sort of doing what, what Cohen used to do for the president.
1: Jeff, switching gears a bit, but perhaps not thematically. Um, At this presidential... I'm curious now. (laughs) The the president's press conference in Hanoi, he was asked about a number of things, a number of topics, including Mm. what's happening in Israel right Mm. now. And uh, his friend, uh, the Israeli prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, indicted. Typically ahead of an election, an American president would say, I don't want to wade in.
3: (laughs) President (laughs) jumped in. President President jumped in. Um, Netanyahu has become, like many foreign leaders, more Trumpian. Uh, AS HE'S WATCHED THIS NEW MODEL OF of, uh, LEADERSHIP, Um, AND I THINK PRESIDENT TRUMP IS QUITE NERVOUS ABOUT WATCHING WHAT WOULD HAPPEN TO A PRIME MINISTER OF AN ALLIED COUNTRY uh, UNDER INDICTMENT. WE ARE FACING AN INTERESTING MOMENT. NETANYAHU HAS BEEN PRIME MINISTER FOR A DECADE, uh, AND this JUST A SECOND RUN. Um, HE MIGHT BE THROUGH. THAT'S NOT GOOD NEWS FOR for DONALD TRUMP. Uh, IT'S NOT GOOD NEWS FOR HIS PARTY. THE THING ABOUT Mm -hmm. NETANYAHU, ONE OF THE MANY SIMILARITIES THEY HAVE IS DO NOT COUNT EITHER MAN OUT. Do not count Netanyahu out yet.
1: That's it for us today. Thank you for watching. We'll see you next week. For Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were White House National Security Advisor John Bolton, House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff, and Alabama Democratic Senator Doug Jones. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow the show and CBS News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 6 p.m. Eastern every Sunday.
12: It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, and not the man pulling the strings. Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst,
9: certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you